What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think I think we're probably okay. If this, I mean, if this one winds up not being that long of a show, we've had like three long ones in a row, haven't we? We have we've had yeah. twenty-seven long ones. In a row. <laughs> so, so this winds up being That's, like an, exactly an hour. I think we're probably all right. It's a valid point. Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast, brought to you by the best tech building site on the web for the commander format, EDH Rec. My name is Joey Schultz, and I'm joined today by my lovely co-hosts. First up, the speedster whose article series takes you from 60 to 100, it's Matt Morgan. I bring as much value to this podcast as a stack of bulk from Magic Origins. Next, the man whose articles remind you to look in the margins, Dana Roach. I bring as much value to this podcast as a stack of bulk from Starter 99. And I'm Joey Schultz, who brings as much value to this podcast as a stack of bulk from somewhere. Dragon's Maze. Joey's definitely Dragon's Maze. That's so low. How dare you? It's okay. The best I can do is a blue enchantment if it makes you feel any better. (laughs) My spirits are automatically dashed and we're barely 30 seconds in. Anyway, I'm the author of the Commander Showdown series and all of these articles and more can be found at edhrec.com along with some awesome featured community content such as other Commander podcasts and gameplay videos. EDHREC itself is a fantastic deck-building resource that compiles data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks, and here on the EDHREC cast, we're going to give all that data a little more context. What's our topic this week, fellas? Old people. <laughs> I, I suppose that's one way to put it. <laughs> I, I believe the, the working title you have here is No Commander for Old Men. <laughs> sort of, yeah. As Matt mentioned, we're looking at what I guess you'll call old man magic. No, we're going to be taking a look at data from some of the commanders before Commander hit its heyday. Back in 2011, Wizards made the first Commander product with things like Mimeoplasm and Kalia of the Vast and Riku of Two Reflections and all that. But Commander was still being played before WotC actually embraced the format. And we wanted to look at some of the Commanders that were really popular at that time before, you know, Wizards actually dipped its hand into this format and started designing products more specifically for it. So we've got a couple of reports that we'll take a look at there and it should be a ton of fun. Before we get started though, we've got a couple of things to note. First, Dana, I think you picked up a fun new card. You want to tell us about it? Um, sure. So I was sorting through uh, a bunch of old foils I had just set in a, in a stack, mostly just to get rid of. And I, I stumbled across a card that I'd seen before, Early Harvest. 
and this is a seventh edition one. Um, for those who don't know what Early Harvest is, it's a colorless and two green for an instant speed spell that says target player untaps all basic lands he or she controls. Which I've seen it before and been like, oh, that's interesting. And then, of course, immediately pass it over. But the seventh edition foil is actually a pretty good looking card. I like old border foil. So, I, so in looking at it closer, I'm like, well, this is definitely worth something. So I looked at the price. I'm like, oh, it's like, you know, seven or eight bucks. I should hold on to it. I'm not gonna just gonna bulk it out. And then the next step was, why don't I actually try it out? So I have it sitting on my desk right now. I'm gonna put it in my mono green recce deck. I'm genuinely curious how this card plays. This isn't a situation where I want a deck to do a thing and I found a card that does a thing. This is a situation where I found a card and I just want to test it out. So I'm really curious to see how it's gonna play in that mono green deck. I can actually give you a little bit of advice from this because I have run the card Early Harvest before in my Krufix God of Horizons deck. And yeah, it put in some work. The only complaints that I had about it were some general complaints that you'll see, you know, from cards the way that you'd expect. It's one of those things that makes you do well when you're already doing well. Um, and if you're behind, then it's not going to necessarily help you catch up. But in that particular deck where I'm just storing a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of mana onto Krufix... Early Harvest was a really great way to float a bunch of mana with my basic lands, cast Early Harvest, and then untap them all so that it could get almost like a green sort of ritual. And that was really effective when I needed a quick burst for a Blue Sun Zenith or a Hydra Broodmaster or something like that. Yeah, couldn't she couldn't she use it with like snow covered basics as well? And then you can do something like extra planar lens and you know well, then, really that, get out of hand. Yeah, that was my main my main thought process was because in that particular deck of mine, I've got uh, extra planar lens, I have Vernal Bloom. I've got uh, the Gauntlet, I have Cage Sun, I have Vornclex. So I have multiple, like, you know, five or six different mana doublers baked into the deck already. So in addition to, like, you know, big ramp spells and whatever, so I'm oftentimes sitting on a ton of mana. But the deck kind of plays in a little bit of a Storm style, play a creature, draw a card, which is hopefully a creature that I play, draw a card. And even with all the mana I have, sometimes I hit that point where, like, I wish I had another 20 to get that huge turn that's going to win me the game. So I'm hoping it's going to kind of play into that big storm creature turn. Um, but I want to see it. I've, I've never actually seen a cast in a game, I don't think. And I think that's kind of a perfect deck for it. So I'm going to try it out and I will report back here in a few weeks and let you know how it played. I love how casually you mentioned it's just like, oh, I wish I had that extra 20, <laughs> extra <laughs> right, 20 exactly, mana. Exactly. Just such an easy... Just it's totally superfluous thing that you mentioned. It's just so offhand. Okay. Well, like <laughs> Wizards was so nice to have printed Kamal Strudic Vow just for me in that deck that I feel at least <laughs> I can do and try to take advantage of it with, with another card. So Awesome. So moving on now, we've actually also got a couple of listener questions that we want to handle. So Matt, will you take us away with our first listener question? Sure can. So Jarrett Gordon, thank you for the Facebook message, email, whatever you want to say. Uh, yeah, listeners, you can find us on social media places. Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> but Jarrett sent us a uh, Facebook message, and he had a question for us. Well, I'll just read the, the whole note for you. Um, yeah. So he said, I've been doing a lot of traveling over the past two years, and uh, the last year or more, I've been taking some decks with me, and I have to ask you guys, if you end up playing 1v1 EDH games, do you adhere to the dual commander rules, or do you stick to multiplayer rules? I was thinking about tuning some of my current decks to be better at 1v1, and so far I haven't run into anyone who plays dual rules outside of tournament play, and I feel like it would be the ass if I, the stranger passing through, tried to force locals to play dual rules. 
So I'll immediately confess that I actually have desperately little experience with 1v1 commander play, but I'll hand it off to you guys. What are your thoughts? Um, I do see a lot of 1v1 commander play using the MTGO online rules uh, ban list, which I think is what this is talking about. Um, I'm assuming it is anyway in terms of the 1v1 ban list. That gets put at the shop I play at quite a bit. That's kind of what the CEDH community does. Instead of doing like a CEDH with regular commander lists, they play 1v1 using the online um, list. So I do see a lot of it in paper, and I've played a little bit. I don't know what you do, though, to get, you know, random people at a shop that you don't know to play it. Um, I, I think based on the games I've seen at the shop, at least, the the 1v1 decks that are built for online play play a lot differently than just taking a regular commander deck and going 1v1 against somebody else. So if you're like playing to win, I would play with that in mind. Aggro is way, way better 1v1. And most of the decks that win the tournaments around here playing 1v1, a lot of them are playing aggro. So like you can sit down with, you know, mono red uh, Zergo and blow somebody up in five turns in a way that you can't in a multiplayer game. I'm not sure that's really answering your question. I'm just saying that it's a it's a very different game. Right. And that, I think, is something that folks have mentioned about the format Canadian Highlander as well. Even though that's a 100-card singleton format, it's a lot more akin to Legacy than it is to Elder Dragon Highlander. Yeah. Because it's entirely separate. Like, the life totals are different, and you don't have a commander, and it's not multiplayer. Like, those aspects really significantly change the way that the game is played. In fact, that single aspect of being a multiplayer versus a single player, like a one-on-one environment, is the entire problem that makes us have lackluster red and white commanders in the first place. So that's a really big dynamic to keep in mind for sure. Matt, what are your thoughts? So I actually was kind of in a similar situation where before I moved to Colorado, my previous job, I did quite a bit of traveling for work. So I very much understand the, the plight that Jarrett's in my big thing was I always brought more than one deck. I always brought, you know, one deck with me that was maybe a little more tuned, a little more powerful. So if I did sit down and somebody wanted to play, you know, 1v1, not so much like 100% tuned, like this is a fully optimized list with Mana Crypt and all these whatever busted cards. But I mean, it was a better deck that I, I could still play in a multiplayer game if we wanted to play a little more powerful, you know, pod for that game. And I also brought cards of just a varying power levels between that and, you know, not quite pre-con level too. So um, the biggest thing for me is I never wanted to to not get to play in a game because I didn't have the right deck. Um, I had some decks that were, you know, derpy, you know, I'm going to play with the kids who have never played. And I brought a deck with me, like I said, that was a little more powerful. Like my my angry Omnath deck is kind of that deck for me. You know, everybody kind of looks at it like, all right, but I mean, you just ramp a lot, play your commander, ramp some more. Player commander again probably ramps some more and like you're just getting rewarded throughout. So um, yeah, I, I can't really tell you what's going to work the best for you as far as you know. Should you tune decks for one v one? I would find that you know happy middle ground. But ultimately, you know, Jared, it's it's up to you, I guess. How do you want to play? Do you want to focus more on one v one? If you haven't seen anybody who plays dual commander, I wouldn't really worry about it. Um, the worst that's going to happen is you know you you sit down and play one v one. And you both are like, okay, this is my multiplayer deck, or this is just a random deck. And you guys, you know, have to take out a card or two because you decide for that game you want to play dual. Um, I wouldn't really worry about it. 
if, especially if you haven't come across it yet. Well, and that, that is actually an aspect to Jared's question here. He is trying to say, at least if I'm reading his question correctly, that sometimes like if you end up playing 1v1 EDH games, he wants to try and stick to dual commander rules, but most people will probably behave even if they do agree to play a 1v1. They'll keep to the multiplayer rules, which means that they're operating on two completely different sides of the table there. So I think that's the relationship here. That's the dynamic that he's trying to figure out because he yeah. doesn't want to like force people to change their decks either. And to that, I guess I would probably have to agree with Matt's you know, assessment of having maybe a deck that does have the dual rules, but then also a deck that does have the multiplayer rules that you think is still tuned for 1v1. Having that plethora there, make sure that, as Matt mentioned, you'll never go without playing magic if you are just prepared for the different possible things. And and what's more, I don't think that it's going to make you look bad if you're like asking people if they wouldn't mind trying out this thing. My experience at any game shop has always been that people are usually really willing to accommodate because they want to play the game. And, you know, it, you're not going to be insulting. You're not going to be rude. You mentioned that you might feel like, you know, like, like a bad person or something if you, as a stranger passing through, were trying to force them to play a certain way. But it, there's never any harm in asking. Yeah, very few problems are ever caused by communicating. Especially communicating too much. Right, like if you, right. If you're, you know, you lead off the bat with, hey, you know, do you guys want to play this rule set? Do you want to play this? Like, ask questions. Just talking. And, you know, that might carry over into, you know, you start making small talk, get to know some people, make some friends. Like, you know, that's not a bad outcome at all. But, yeah, the, I just, I hate, you know, not being able to play a game and having to walk away without, have, you know, without gotten to play. So, whatever is going to have the result that lets you play the most games of Magic, that's what I would go with. Yeah. And even if you only have a handful of decks and you don't have, you know, too many options that you can have like oh this deck will be for 1v1 for dual commander rules this deck will be for 1v1 for multiplayer rules in case of, like even if you don't have necessarily that much capacity to have that much preparation you could also make like just a small list of cards that you'd switch out depending on which type of rules that you end up going with and that hopefully wouldn't take you too long to switch things out if you've got just a quick list that you can reference really easily yeah and also to, to answer your last part um don't force anybody to play any rules like just ask the question <laughs> you're not going to be a jerk if you ask people ahead of time, like we said, communicate, just ask the questions, say, hey, you know, I have this 1v1 deck. Do you guys mind playing it? No? Cool. All right. I'm going to play this deck instead then. I've had that conversation many times going to different shops. So yeah, just make sure it's always a question, not a statement. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, as a person who's never done 1v1 dual commander or multiplayer commander rules, either one of them, I kind of feel the impulse to like maybe want to try it out. And I expect some of the people that you'll run into will be, they'll have that same kind of adventurous spirit. They'll also want to try it out. So as, as long as you're, you know, prepared and as long as you ask, I don't think that you're going to come off the way that you worry that you might come off. This sounds like a good problem to have, I guess. <laughs> yeah. You get to meet a lot of different people, get to play a lot of different games and play styles. And it's fun. Like you sit down and like, that's how you, you know, before the website came around, that's how you found out about new cards and new interactions and everything. You just played games with strangers. Yeah, and you can compromise. Maybe play one one way, one another way. Like, hopefully you can get in multiple games in a night. So that might be another way to get around it as well. Let's move on now. We've got another listener question as well. Dana, I'm actually going to pass this one on to you. Would you read this other question that we've got from David Heiser? I can indeed. Uh, David Heiser asks... Is Commander changing, and can EDH Rec hold us in the past? He 
continues on by saying, I built Zira Arian lately, and EDH Rex shows her primarily as a land matters or insect tribal commander, which seems dated. Uh, I'm beginning to build Janara now, and again, EDH Rex is being vaguely helpful as I want to play a very Drago Voltron deck, but I see the data does not support or barely supports how I'm building the deck, and it makes me think I'm going down the wrong path. So there's a few things there, and he has a follow-up to it, but we'll get with that later because it kind of segues into our next bit. So there's quite a few things going on there about is Commander changing? Can EDHREC hold us in the past? Data doesn't do anything personal. <laughs> it's just data. <laughs> like, I know what you're saying, but, I mean, yeah, like, if, if once upon a time everyone was building Zero Area in one way and <laughs> that deck has evolved, how people are building it today, the data is still there and it's going to dilute what you're seeing or maybe what the the modern consensus is is definitely going to be watered down by what the previous consensus is. I don't I really don't know if you can avoid that without doing some filtering. Well, so that's one immediate response that I would come to is that if you are worried that the general data that you're seeing on a commander's page on EDHREC isn't really representing the style that you personally want to play, that's what that theme filter thing is there for. Like that tool is so, so useful because it can help pick out the different styles that you might want to play. So even if you're seeing a whole lot of lands matter and a whole lot of uh, other weird stuff for for Zira, I can't pronounce her, Zira, Arian. Uh, even if you're seeing all of those, like there are other options on the theme filter that might help you try and find the thing that you would prefer to play. If you're seeing a whole bunch of Voltron stuff on Janara, then you can choose one of the options that is not Voltron, and that might be a bit more in a control style. Like, th there's just a ton of options there that you can choose, and I found that to be excessively helpful when I'm trying to build a deck that goes in a specific direction, rather than having a kind of an amalgamation of a bunch of different strategies. That's one thing that Matt has been really keen to point out, especially about the Atraxa EDH rec page, because she's got like 30 different strategies all piled onto one single page. Whether it's Planeswalkers or plus one counters or Infect or minus one counters, all of that is being represented on a single page. So those theme filters are a really great way to filter through and find the stuff that you specifically want to play. Yeah, like like you just said, Joey, that was a really good point. Like at, with, with a lot of commanders, especially if you're taking it not in the direction of the, just the, the basic default deck list that, that EDH rec pulls, you have to use a themes tab at this point. There's just so many decks out there that you, if you want to narrow it down or take it off, you know, say you don't want to do Zier Arian, Lands Matter, you have to use a theme. If you want to, Atraxa, like you said, you have to use a specific theme if you want to look at, you know, building a deck a certain way, um, which is not a bad thing because then you're going to get more tuned stuff, um, more tuned recommendations towards what you're trying to do. To answer your first two questions, which are kind of mutually exclusive, is Commander changing? Yes. Can EDHREC hold us in the past? Kind of. I don't think it's bad that Commander's changing. Like, we're always getting new mechanics. Wizards, you know, we had a conversation, Dana and Joey and I, uh, with Gavin Verhey on Twitter. So it's very public. It's not like we're, we have any insider information at all. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I just want to make sure people don't think, you know, we have the inside leg because we're corporate chills, apparently. Um, but no, but, but Gavin was very open. He said, you know what? We know that Boros has an issue. We're trying to find out different ways within the color pie to, you know, cover up that issue, do different things, whether it was fire song and Sunspeaker, whether it's, you know, Atali stuff like that. Um, but they're, you know, commanders changing in a good way. You know, we're always getting new and different things to do. Um, maybe not with, you know, Gilda Ravnica with Boros, for example, but, um, you know, Commander's always changing. That's a great thing because we get to try new things. We get to try out different strategies, all that different fun stuff. Can EDHREC hold it? No, go ahead. I know you had a point, Dana. <laughs> um, Commander's also changing in part because 
how we understand Commander has changed. And, and the comparison I would make here is looking at video games, um, you know, years and years ago when World of Warcraft first came out, I remember playing that game. And for the first six, eight, ten months people were playing it, they would just build their character whatever way they wanted to build. If you were playing a mage and you wanted to play Frost, you built Frost. You built Fire, you built Arcane, whatever you kind of thought was more interesting, you built that. No one really understood the math or the statistics behind any of those spells because they weren't available. A lot of that data was hidden. As the game has progressed after that first year, a lot of that data was revealed to players, whether it was through data mining or through um, Blizzard actually revealing some of those numbers. And people could then find out some of those stats. Okay, a Frostbolt that cost you know 2.5 seconds to cast used 75% of your spell power. So like you could figure out the ratio on that spell you know, per minute you could cast X amount of Frostbolts and use this amount of your spell damage versus a fireball, which may have used more spell power because it didn't have a slow built in or whatever. Like people could extrapolate that data out and then figure out, oh, based on these stats, this spec is, you know, will deal 25% more damage per minute than this spec. That changed how the game got played, even though maybe nothing about the game itself changed, the understanding changed, and then players altered their behavior um, when they played the game, which then forced the game to change around them. So not only is the game changing in terms of like cards that get added, new mechanics, as stat, as sites like EDH Rec being the, the most prominent one, reveal some of this data to people that maybe weren't aware of it, it's changed our understanding of that game and how we build decks and how we play those decks. I really like that evaluation, and I have to confess that I have a really sudden desire to shout Leroy Jenkins into my microphone, but I'm not going <laughs> to. Yeah. <have> that. <laughs> but, I mean, you're absolutely right. We had an entire episode. Episode six, I think, was our uh, trends in EDH episode, where we're just looking at the types of things, the data that we've been able to collect since 2014, and how that data has kind of shifted. For example, the converted mana cost of spells has gone down a bit. We can actually like see we had a graph that we could see that it was changing the number of colors that people tended to run in their decks that has also changed even on some other podcasts i've noticed that some podcast hosts will say that the attitude towards a commander deck itself is different now they used to be and i i still have these i still have like decks that are my babies i'm never going to get rid of them but i am growing more flippant i'm growing more like ah, i can recreate i can get rid of one certain deck now and that's an attitude itself that seems completely like completely new because it used to be the case at least for me this is just my own personal testimony but it used to be the case for me that i never wanted to get rid of any of my decks all of them had to stay i always wanted to use that specific commander but now i'm actually more willing to change as new stuff comes out like and there's a total not just data shift but an attitudinal shift and then also dana as you mentioned our understanding of how the game can be played most efficiently that's also shifting so yeah there's definitely a ton a ton of stuff that's shifting about the game but i don't think that any of that is bad really i i'm actually really excited to have to adapt yeah well and also like bad or good i don't i don't think it's bad either but regardless of how you feel about it it is like it's what's happening it's what always happens with with data and with games and with really anything um you know the longer something is around the more information becomes available um that alters people's perceptions and that like you can't get that genie back in the bottle it just is what it is so you can either embrace it or or not but it, it's there. That's just how things break down. Right. Yeah. As for the question of whether EDH rec holds us in the past, I would say that there is that danger if we don't wield the numbers wisely. 
but EDH rec is still like it's in the business of measuring the popularity of things and it does so by percentage it does so really well i think and you can actually sort of track changes even if they are a little slow it is still cognizant of the attitudes and the way that they're shifting an example for me on a past episode we were comparing our decks against the data and one that i had considered using was marin of clan naltoth before i realized that i was basically pretty much completely in sync with the data i decided not to do that particular one because it was less interesting but one of the things that i noticed while i was preparing for that when i was evaluating my marin list against the data here was that one of the cards that i'd always decried as as not being good enough to actually be in a Marin list because it was suffering from precon effect. It had just come in the precon and everyone was running it. Was the spell Primal Growth, which allows you to sacrifice a creature to get lands. And I just never thought that that was good enough, but it was always one of the top cards for Marin. I was just like, I don't want this. I want my ramp on a creature. I don't think people should be playing this. But that was one of the things that I noticed when I was considering comparing my data in a Marin deck against the data on EDH Rex Marin page because Primal Growth is no longer there. It's no longer among the top cards. It's sunken down a little bit. The data is also catching up with the fact that things are changing. So I, I don't think necessarily that EDHREC is holding us in the past. There are certain commanders that maybe are sticking with the theme that they were initially built as. Matt has mentioned this before with his Miri deck, for example. Everyone's still building that as a cat tribal because it came in a cat tribal deck. But there are cards that are starting to peek through that are also a little more interesting and a bit more diverse. And so that's really just getting back to that whole Atraxa point. The front page of a commander is going to be a big amalgamation of a bunch of different strategies because a lot of commanders have a diversity of strategies. And you can use different filters and different advanced filters, finding only decks with specific cards or such like that, that you can find the things that you specifically want to build around. And that can be of great assistance. And it won't make you feel like you're doing things wrong you're not doing things wrong if you're building the deck that you want to play yeah and what and to 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 extrapolate more i used a joey word by the way uh <laughs> to, but but to build upon my previous post or comment um about kind of with how you know does edh rec hold us in the past to build off what joey said only if you let it you know ultimately yeah. like like we've said time and time again the website is just purely data it's numbers what you do with it is up to you. So don't blame EDH rec. And, and there have been some podcasts that kind of came down on the site uh, who will go nameless because, you know, everybody else is building the, the optimized best deck. Well, that's not on us. You know, we're just telling people what's going on, but I mean, you don't tell people, you know, you don't come down on wizards for posting, you know, top performing lists on magic online tournaments. You know, a lot of constructed players, they love that because they can see the new tech that people are doing. They can see, you know, oh my gosh, this new interaction that we never even thought of, it's popping up. So knowledge is only as dangerous or as beneficial as you let it be. Um, if, if you want to stay away from, you know, all the data that we have, that's fine. Um, we talked about my Moldrotha deck when we did decks versus the data where, you know, Joey was surprised that a lot of the, my card choices weren't necessarily what was going on on the typical Moldrotha page. And that's because I just actively chose I want to play it differently. I want to be able to close games. I want to do this. I want to focus on these interactions rather than this one. So it's EDH rec can hold us in the past only if you are a slave to the data. If you just want to use it. Uh, and the big thing that we, you know, the site was designed even for was it's not here to build a deck for you. It's here to tell you some of those, you know, filler pieces like, oh man, I forgot about this. Thanks EDH rec for helping me remember, you know, this, this, corner case card that helps me get from, you know, 97 to 100 cards. That was the the whole point of starting EDHREC. It wasn't to build decks for you. It wasn't to show you what the best deck is necessarily. It's, 
hey, this is what other people are doing. Here's some crowdsourced information. Um, do with it what you will. So, yeah, it, the, the website is only dangerous if you let it be. And you should be a better deck builder and a better critical thinker in general than to let that happen just because it's, it's, it's numbers. Yeah, you're, you're never going to be wrong if you're building the deck that you would rather play. That's why at the intro of each one of these episodes, the way that I phrase it is that EDHREC is a fantastic deck building resource that compiles data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations. That's all that they are. They're recommendations because, as Matt mentioned, they're just crowdsourced. This is just stuff that we've noticed that people are playing. And it's just meant to help expedite the building process so that you don't have to shuffle through a bunch of bargain bins to find cards that might be good with your new commander. It's just there to help you get a bunch of information in one place. And that's after that, it's entirely up to you. This is just a great big sandbox. And some mounds of sand are a little higher than others, but you don't have to climb up them. Yeah, one of the reasons I just wanted to write for the site in general and, and kind of get involved with the project was I don't have enough time personally to, to play test a bunch of games and try out, you know, 20, 25 different cards. Like I would like to be able to get that pulled down to, you know, five cards from what I think, you know, what I want, what I want a deck to be is. Um, I, I appreciate just that time saving factor. You know, if I think something's going to be, you know, maybe okay, but I, I'm not sure if I want to try it or not. I can just look at the site and say, yeah, it's not showing up on this commander's page at all. So it's probably not really worth trying. Granted, you know, there are some cards that I, choose to do that with. Um, but it's going to save me a lot of time because, you know, I, I value my time getting to play games in general because I don't get out to play near as much as I used to. So the the site itself saves me, and I'm sure, you know, m- many other people, quite a bit of time. So it's just respecting my time. It's respecting other people's time, you know, trying out these derpy combos that I, or cards that I don't even like. Well, and that is also kind of the reason that we wanted to start the podcast. Like, all of these numbers, they're just, they're, they're naked numbers. They don't really mean a whole lot. We want to provide context to those numbers. We challenge the stats every single episode because, you know, sometimes we disagree with the stuff that we see here. And it's good to be critical of that information for sure. So, yeah, I, I definitely appreciate both of the listener questions that we got. Jarrett, thank you so much. David, thank you so much. We really appreciate the opportunity to talk about stuff like this because I think that it is valuable. All right, now we want to get to that follow-up question that Dana mentioned that David had submitted as well, but we're going to take just one more second before we get to that because we're going to do the head-to-head segment. Dana, would you start us off with your head-to-head? I certainly can. So, talking about old man magic, I looked back at the oldest of the man magic, which are the first two expansion sets, Arabian Nights and Antiquities. That, those were the first sets where we got land cards that weren't mana-producing lands. Or, or they produced mana, but they, they did another thing other than just produce mana. And the, the most notable two from those two expansions are Strip Mine and City of Brass, both of which see extensive EDH play. The question is, which of those two original expansion-era cards, Strip Mine or City of Brass, sees more play in EDH? Strip Mine or City of Brass? Technically speaking, we should know the answer to this because Stripmine and City of Brass have both been in other head-to-heads. I, I believe they have, yes. Just not against each other. So we should know the answer if we remember those statistics. The problem is we have terrible memories. Yeah, you're asking <laughs> so, you're asking me to remember anything when I, I forget I have stuff in the oven all the time. <laughs> um, my guess is going to be on Stripmine. I feel like it's just a very classic and... It's the most straightforward of land destruction effects, and that 
seems to me like it would be a bit more desirable as a utility thing. City of Brass seems like people maybe wouldn't play it except in stuff like a five color deck, whereas Strip Mine is a bit more ubiquitous in any color of deck. So I'm going to try that one. I'm going to go the opposite way. I think with how popular, you know, three and four color decks have, you know, come to be over the past few years, um, mana fixing has kind of gotten to a premium. And yes, you know, we kind of have a glut of, of produces any color mana reflecting pool type of effects. But I think it's so old and it's, Mana fixing has always just been at a premium. There, there are decks that can't really afford to run strip mine just because it doesn't make colored mana. Whereas very few decks won't mind a dual land that occasionally will ping them for, you know, three or four life, whatever. I'm going to go with City of Brass. Well, before I give you the answer, I, I will note strip mine, uh, the last like large scale reprint for it was fourth edition. It, it did show up in a From the Vault lands, but. It hasn't been reprinted in a long time, and the price and an is, expedition. Uh, oh yeah, expedition as well. So, but it's been a long time since we've had a, like a readily available strip mine, and it's also soared to close to twenty five dollars. Where City of Brass has been reprinted a few times recently. That it was in um, one of the modern event decks. Um, it was in the first modern masters, I believe, um, and it's still you know around five. However, the winner here is Strip Mine, but not by what? a lot. It's only about oh. six thousand decks ahead. City of Brass is in 26,000 strip mines and 32. Hmm. And, and Not I, that many decks ahead. 6,000 well, a lot. But on the scale of being in 26,000, <laughs> it's not. I, I thought it was going to be further ahead, actually. I thought strip mine was going to be in, you know, 50,000 decks and City of Brass would be in half as many. And, and hmm. this is one talking about, like, statistics changing. I wonder if, given strip mine's price increase in the last few years, I wonder if we, we like, were to revisit this in a year or two down the road assuming we haven't got a new reprint of strip mine, I wonder if we'll see that gap close even further. That's actually a really excellent point. The availability and price of cards can definitely affect statistics in a certain gap, in a certain point, in a certain period of time. So yeah, I would not actually be surprised if exactly what you just mentioned comes to pass. That wouldn't shock me at all. And, and for the curious, the number three most popular land from those first uh, two expansions is Mistra's Factory. Mistra's Factory, yeah. I, I would have thought Desert for some reason, though I guess I've never seen a Desert really get much play in ADH. Uh, yeah, have you ever, have you ever yeah, seen no. anybody play Desert? No. But for some reason I was just like, oh, it's probably going to be Desert. But it was not. It was, in fact, Mistra's Factory, which also had a reprint fairly recently, I believe. Mm-hmm. Very nice. I'm going to move on to my head-to-head now. Some pretty classic stuff. I want to know if you guys can guess which of these classic draw enchantments is more popular. Phyrexian Arena or Rhystic Study? Rhystic Study. I'm going to go with Arena. All right. What are your reasoning? <laughs> um, because I, 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 I said you, so. A Rhystic Study is kind of annoying. <laughs> like, I've never heard somebody say, I don't want to run Phyrexian Arena because it annoys people. And I've heard that about Rhystic Study. More than once, I've heard someone say, yeah, I run it in one deck, but not in all my blue decks because it's, ir- it's irritating. Uh, it's also tougher to find. It did get reprinted, I think, in the Commander's Arsenal. But aside from that, I don't know if it's had a reprint in years, whereas Arena's actually been in Commander Precons. It's been in one of the Master sets. So I've, there's a couple factors at play there, but I'm going to guess Arena. See, I think just just looking at the price graph for for you know, how it correlates with Commander getting popular to where it is now. I remember, you know, when I first got back into the game, before Commander was really a, a big thing, Rhystic Studies were like a dollar. And yep. now you'll talk if about not Rhystic less. Study. Yeah, if not less. 
the, the price of Rhystic Study is, is completely tied to its playability in Commander. It's not played in any other format except for maybe Cube, maybe. But yeah, now you look at Rhystic Study, it's what, 10, 15 bucks, probably more at this point. Yeah, that, that card just didn't exist, whereas, you know, Phyrexian Arena, um, I know I've played it in a modern deck before, so I'm going to go with Rhystic Study just because of, you know, it's it's kind of one of those cards that you just, when you think of blue and Commander, you think of Cyclonic Rift, blah, and Rhystic Study. So I'm going to go with Study. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice though, they really mean flavor. Like in your face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either, but it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice, anything but subtle. All very well reasoned. Let's get some numbers now here. Ristic Study is showing up in 36,074 decks, and Phyrexing in Arena, 42,375. Yeah! <laughs> uh, I mean, I, and I don't think that those are necessarily like indicative of which card is better, because I do think that Ristic Study is better. But, like, yeah, those th that's a pretty significant gap, I think. And I've had my rants about Phyrexian Arena in the past before. I kind of prefer some of the one-shot really quick effects but those are both really big enchantments that we see a whole lot in this particular format and i just thought that it would be fun to to take a look at some of those numbers regardless they're seeing a ton of play matt what's your head-to-head -head? so uh we're, we're gonna talk a little bit about old man commanders so i figured we'd go back to one of my very first commander decks it was the spikiest of spike it was the problem child of my playgroup but rafik of the many was one of my very first decks Surprise to no one. So looking at Rafika the Many decks, which card has more synergy between Steel of the Godhead and Shield of the Oversoul? Two very similar cards. They're both from the same cycle, um, back from Lorwyn, I want to say. Um, but it was one of those hybrid uh, mana auras. So Steel of the Godhead is the white-blue one, which costs two and a blue, or two and a hybrid white-blue, I guess. And it says, as long as Enchanted Creature is white, it gets plus one, plus one, and lifelink. As long as Enchanted Creature is blue, it gets plus one, plus one, and is unblockable. Whereas Shield of the Oversoul is two and a hybrid green-white. And it reads... Sorry, i got to zoom in on my picture. As long as the Enchanted Creature is green, it gets plus one, plus one, and is indestructible. And as long as Enchanted Creature is white, it gets plus one, plus one, and has flying. Which one do you think has more synergy? So how do you think it is more unique to Rafik decks? If synergy is the rate that we're looking at, I'm probably going to go with Steel of the Godhead. A Bond deck doesn't seem to me like it necessarily always needs unblockability and lifelink, which Steel of the Godhead provides. Whereas I can see a lot of people generally in a green and white plus any other colors deck wanting the Shield of the Oversoul effect for its indestructibility. So I think that would be my reasoning for choosing Steel. Okay, Dana? I'm going to go with Shoot of the Oversoul, which is the Swazny one, correct? Yes. Um, because I think there's a lot of cards in Rafik that people run that give him trample or give him some way to punch through damage. And every Rafik deck I've seen, people's primary concern is removing Rafik. And although Indestructible isn't maybe as good as Hexproof in that regard, I think people really like the idea of slapping an enchantment on him that's going to make him tough to get off the field 
So for that reason alone, I'm going to go with Shield of the Oversoul. Well, Joey gets to go 2-0 today. Oh! Yeah. So Steel of the Godhead is played in 57% of decks at 45% synergy, whereas Shield of the Oversoul is in 52% of the decks at 42% synergy. So fairly close, both on you know total percentages and on synergy, but Steel of the Godhead does edge it out. Very nice. And hey, we might be seeing a reference to Rafik of the Many in my Challenge the Stats later on in the episode. Just oh, nice. Just put that out there. As for me being 2-0, uh, if I were a magic card and I was a 2-0, I would immediately die as a result of state-based effects. So you get the moral victory, Dana. Nice. I'll take it. <laughs> You're such a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty. Now let's get to David's follow-up question because it does tie in pretty nicely with the topic that we had chosen for this particular episode. Dana, do you want to read us that follow-up question? Sure. Uh, his follow-up question was, can you run a report of cards that were prominent in Commander but no longer are? For example, decks made at a certain time in 2014 used X card, whereas now we do not see recent decks using that card anymore. This is a really interesting question, and David, your ears must have been burning because we had chosen this particular, you know, looking at some older commanders topic the day that you sent us this question, which is pretty funny. It is a little more difficult than it sounds to run reports of those older decks and cards there because EDHREC actually just... It only takes data from a single deck, and as people update it, it will just automatically assume that that data has always been the case. It's a little maybe thorny and behind-the-scenes-y that's kind of difficult to explain, but basically the reports that you're asking about are a little tougher to create than they sound because of the way that we can get data. And especially going back as far as 2014, that was the first year that EDHREC was actually a thing. I know it sort of feels like EDHREC has always been around, but we've only got data going back as far as 2014, so we have to be pretty clever about how we find that data. But the topic that we did want to handle today is looking at some of those older commanders. That's a little easier for us to find some data on, so that's what we'll be focusing on today. So we're going to take a look specifically at commanders from before 2011. I did just mention that we've only got data going as back as far as 2014, but we still wanted to see what was popular excluding the post-2011 commanders because, you know, that was kind of the time before WotC had embraced the commander format. So we're just going to be looking at those specific commanders and hopefully that can provide us with some of that information that you're looking for to try and get a sense of what the past meta was and especially to see the ways that EDH is changing today. You guys ready? Let's do it. Sounds pretty fun to me. First, we're going to be looking at a list of pre-2011 commanders and their current popularity. So these are just, you know, if someone made one of these decks yesterday, it's still being counted. But these are commanders that we're just looking at that were created before 2011 and Wizards started embracing the commander format. Matt, what are some of the top commanders we're seeing here? So the most popular pre-2011 commander is Xur the Enchanter. Most people probably aren't too surprised at that. Um, coming yeah. in at uh, 1,765 decks. Number two, Scion of the Ur-Dragon at 1,608 decks. Sliver Overlord, number three, 1,542. Myel the Anima slips under 1,500 decks at 1,481. And then out, rounding out the top five, Child of Alara at 1,420 decks. So gives us a pretty interesting sense of the format here. And again, these are just the current popularities of all of these pre-2011 commanders. One of the observations that I immediately make 
And in fact, if we extend to the top six, we can see that Progenitus is there at 1,331 decks. A lot of these are five color commanders, and I find that probably the most interesting data point. Yeah, Wizards has kind of shied away outside of, you know, if you if you consider Chromanticore a five color legend, uh, <laughs> they haven't really done that a whole lot lately. And so that when I was, I was reading the list and I was kind of looking down a little bit as you were saying that, I was thinking, man, there's a lot of five color, you know, commander stuff going on there, you know, for the top six. So, yeah. Dana, what are some of your impressions about these commanders? Well, I think Matt mentioned Zer, um, you know, being a kind of a known name, but I think all of these are commanders that are ones that jump out at you as having a real specific role or niche. I mean, everyone knows how powerful Zer is. Scion, for the longest time, was the go-to dragon commander. Uh, Sliver Overlord is just a strong Sliver commander. I mean, these are all creatures atop decks that have a really specific defined role and a really specific defined deck. So I, when I, none of these names surprises me at all. Yeah, that's an excellent way to put it. One of the questions that I did want to ask when looking at these is, why these specific commanders? Why are these the ones whose popularity has been sustained, even as we're you know, just totally buffeted with a whole bunch of new exciting commanders from commander products where they're actually designing specifically for the format, these which were not necessarily designed with the EDH format in mind. Why are these the ones that we see the highest popularity on? And I think that's exactly it. Like, you you know these decks, there's a, a significant pedigree to them, and even if you think of, like, you know, Progenitus as just being, like, maybe a card that people use as a placeholder as an excuse to have a five-color deck... Well, it's also a fearsome commander. It's protection from everything. Like, it's not in that spot lightly. Like, Child of Alara is the type of thing that people would use for five-color control. Mildly Anima is one of the most famous gonna-play-huge-stuff kind of kind of things. Like, Sliver Overlord, hello, that thing's super, super famous because, you know, Slivers, they run the world. So, yeah, that's, that's I think, a really great point, Dana. And when you get past the, the, the cards we mentioned, you know, it, it continues down the list the same way. Doran the Siege Tower, you know, sure, we have Arcady Sabbath now, but he's in different colors. Doran still has a really specific deck. Rafik is on there. Um, Risa Redeemed. Omnath Locus of Mana. Grand Arbiter. Azami. Lady of Scrolls. Those are all commanders. You know exactly what that deck looks like, more or less. You can tell what mm-hmm. it's going to do. They have roles that no other card really kind of replaces. Yeah, and you missed one there. A personal favorite of mine is Joyra the Gitu, and same thing, yeah, really. Again, yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. There's like these are names with fame for re- for a reason too. They're they're all strong commanders that give you a deck to build around them. Yeah, and it's just neat to see that these ones have, in a way, withstood the test of time. Which reminds me, we should get on to the other report that we can look at here. So these are just the commanders that are currently popular. We're looking at the current popularity of those older commanders, the ones that were, you know, in existence before 2011. But we also want to take a look of the pre-2011 commanders and their popularity back when EDHREC first began collecting data. Now, again, we're only getting this data from 2014, but we're just taking the data that we had from 2014 and cutting out all of those post-2011 commanders. And that's when we see the list kind of start to change, especially with numbers. EDHREC had a lot less numbers there. But the commanders that are sitting on the top are not necessarily the same commanders that we see in the, the top of the last list that we just looked at. So, Matt, I'm going to hand it off to you. What are some of these, you know, the, 
the back in 2014 in those days what what are we seeing on that list so so the 2014 meta game at large heading it up is threxamundar with 61 decks <laughs> in second place yeah just just a hair not too much um, it's sec- almost like back then people didn't know that edh rec was pulling data from deck building websites i don't know or just that the format wasn't near as popular as it was you know exactly now. um but anyway, so Thraxamundar is the number one deck. Number two, Rafik of the Many with 60 decks. Doran the Siege Tower, number three with 52. Number four is Joira of the Gyasu at 46. <laughs> also tied with Jora is Mael the Anima at 46 as well. There is your top five commanders of 2014. So a couple of familiar names, but also a couple of names are missing. I think it's crazy just knowing how you know, little I've ever seen Thraxamundar out in the wild that he had the most decks to his name when the, when the site first started scraping data. Um, I, when I first started playing commander, so we're talking return to Ravnica ish era, I saw multiple Thraxamundar decks. A couple were zombie tribal, a couple were just aggro. So I, I remember seeing those decks and I no longer see those, those, those players, even the ones I still know no longer have their Thrax deck together. So I, it, it kind of makes sense to me. I remember back in the day, you know, that's not too far removed from 2014. I, I saw the Thrax deck and I don't anymore. So yeah, I, I get that it was popular back then. And I also get why it's not in the list today. That makes sense well, based on what I've was seen. It, was it Max running Thrax? Uh, Max seems like a Thrax player. He was not, but it was, it was a, another friend of ours that was. Okay. Well, and really, this is one of the points that I think is going to be most interesting to take away. It's that... Kind of Thraxamundar was one of the only Grixis commanders available at that time, really. Yeah, that's true. It's since been pushed out with things like Inala, with things like Jaleva, with things like Marchesa, with things like Nikosar, with things like Kess, with, you know, all those, Marisil, a whole bunch of them. There didn't used to be a plethora of options at that time, and that definitely makes sense. Like, if people wanted to play Grixis good stuff, Thrax was kind of one of the only options you had that and you had nickel bolus and not much else so that's probably one of the reasons where we're seeing it there and why if we look at the original report the original list the the current popularity thraxamunder has now fallen to 21st place instead of first place on comparing these two lists one thing that jumps out at me as well is most of those commanders on the top of the list are heavily skewed towards turning creatures sideways not that there isn't a mm. lot of that today but it's usually mixed in with something else. Like, like if you look at Atraxa being the most popular commander right now, I would imagine most Atraxa lists, unless they are uh, Super Friends decks, are probably still winning via combat damage. But it's not reliant necessarily on Atraxa to be part of that. Mm-hmm. Thraxamundar's only role in your deck, for the most part, is swinging at people. Rafik's only role, for the most part, in that Rafik deck is swinging. Doran's only role is making those big-butted creatures you have swing for more damage. Um, Mile puts big bodies in play, and, and even Joira was probably suspending a lot of Eldrazi back in the day that she was then swinging with in a couple turns. So it's a it seems much more creature-swinging-centric than maybe you see today. That's an excellent point. If we take a look at the top commanders of all time, 
They tend to be the kind of sit back, relax, and let your value slowly accrue commanders. Atraxa lets you proliferate every turn. You don't need to attack for her to be good. Marin of Clan Eltoth, same way. You've got Brea, who can just amass a bunch of, bunch of, bunch of Thopters until she can combo out in any number of different ways. Olero is literally leaning back in his chair. You've got Nikosar as well. Like, yeah, very few of the top commanders of all time actually involve attacking. So a lot of these older commanders that we're seeing that were a bit more aggressive, that strategy, as our understanding of commanders, has changed and we've noticed that attacking and being that proactive can sometimes be to your downfall because it allows other people to counterattack you leave yourself a lot more defenseless against multiple players that's probably one of the reasons why we're seeing that shift comparing these two lists that's a really good observation i think it's kind of worth pointing out too that you know you have thrax rafik mael you go down a little bit more there's crash and, and stuff like that but it's all uh, alara shards so i think that just kind of shows how mm-hmm. much of an impact that block had on on the format that's another really good point when we compare those you know we saw the whole bunch of five color stuff happening in the current popularity lists but yeah back then back in the the old times data back when you know i i could call you guys grandpa or or something like that peepaw excuse you ah i see <laughs> pop pop so me, joey pop pop oh pop well, pop and I had to beat you guys to the age joke, because if you guys had made it, you would have been like, you know, back when Joey was five. Anyway. That, that's that's two years from now. What are you talking about, Joey? <laughs> that got off the rails really quickly. Anyway, you're yeah, you're, you're right to point out that we're definitely seeing a lot of the, uh, the, the shards. People clearly wanted to continue playing three colors. They wanted to have access to those colors for good reasons. And now we've been given a lot more of that particular access. So we're able to push some of those other commanders that used to be popular back to the side because they're no longer the only thing that we have in those color schemes. Like I, I can remember a time when Sharoom was the the default that people kind of had to play, even if they just wanted to play, you know, just, just like Esper good stuff. They wanted to play just Esper anything, not just Esper artifacts, but Sharoom and... Uh, send triplets were kind of the only option that they had. I, I do remember that time, and that's been largely taken care of. Now there are a lot more options in that color scheme. I mean, looking at the list, I think there's more five-color commanders in the top 10 or top 15 of this than there are monocolored commanders total in the whole list. There's only a couple <laughs> mono commanders on this list, and there's a lot of, you know, it's heavily leaning towards towards three color but there's a lot of five color in here as well and almost no monocolor commanders that's always been the case i think when we did our data trends yeah. episode we've sort of always seen that monocolored commanders don't tend to get a lot of play because people like covering up with you know any weaknesses of one color with another and i also wonder how much of the preponderance of multicolor stuff is due to the player base back then because if this was before pre-cons were readily available, you're probably looking at relatively diehard Magic players that are playing Commander. If they're not being told what the format is, it's people that are hearing about Commander via message boards or you know their local shop. Um, the player base was probably maybe a little bit more entrenched in the game and maybe had access to original dual lands and things like that that the average player today maybe doesn't. I don't know. I have no way of proving that, but I could given the fact that this was a much more limited pool of people, I wonder if it wasn't a little bit self-selecting and you're seeing some more of that in terms of people like, oh, I can easily throw together a three-color deck because I have all the duels I want to run and I have all the fetches I want to run. 
I think that's, that's just kind of a fair point to just how well the mana has developed too since since all these commanders came out. Like, you know, Shocklands were around, probably not readily available. They kind of got soaked up by, you know, the extended and modern format. But then, I mean, you have like the Innistrad lands, you have the Gates, you have all these, you know, land cycles that they've put out ever since these commanders were first designed. So that kind of helps out, you know, when we look at all of the numbers as of 2014, the five color lists are pretty far down the list, but then as you look, you know, how they are popular, you know, today, um, all those five color commanders have risen up quite a bit. And that just shows how good the mana fixing has been. You know, we, we celebrate uh, Chromatic Lantern getting reprinted here soon. Um, stuff like that, you know, it probably has a, a non-zero effect on on how popular those five color commanders have gotten today as opposed to how they were back in, you know, back in the day. It was probably also much less of a handicap back then, um, you know, most assumptions are the format was a lot slower in those early days. It's a lot easier to play a Thraxamundar if the first three or four turns of most games are just people playing land and passing. I'm I'm actually really happy that you mentioned that. That's something that we've noticed on trends before too, that the average converted mana cost is kind of going down. And I think that that does clue in that over time the format is getting a little faster. And and the mana costs of these commanders is something that I definitely take in, in like Thraxamundar being a top commander is like he's like what seven mana like it's tough to play a seven mana commander nowadays yeah for sure and 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 that's today when we have you know more developed mana bases and a better understanding of how that stuff goes yeah it's much more challenging but I think the game back then maybe made it so it wasn't yeah so another kind of weird question what are your guys thoughts about some of these commanders that have actually stayed a little more consistent across both of these lists the one that's jumping out to me as an example is Maya the anima back then in the older data thing that we're seeing she's in number five position but then if we take a look at today's she's in actually the number four position when we're looking at pre-2011 commanders so there are a handful that have actually stuck around what are your evaluations about those particular commanders I think there's a little bit of pre-con effect bleed over there. Thrax was in, I think, the 2013 deck. Mile was in a deck. Looking at the list, uh, Glissa Trader was in one of the pre-cons. Crash was as well. So I think there's a little bit of pre-con effect boosting the numbers on these somewhat. Crash was in a pre-con? I think Crash so. Was. I could be mistaken. Glissa wasn't. Glissa was Glissa not. Glissa was not? Okay. But yeah, Crash was. was. I think it was in the Prosh deck. Was he? I'm pretty sure. I have to look this up now because if <laughs> I get to be right and you get to be wrong, that'll make me really, really happy. That's fine. I still have your your foil Meldrotha. And I could, I could, be, I could, be, I could be mistaking that for. I know he was definitely from the vault. That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, he has a different art on his from the vault. This was really good commander, you know, chatter. But you know, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, Mael was, I know Mael was in the pre-con because my very first, my very first pre-Rafiq, very first commander deck was Mael the Anima. And that was, that was fun. That was how I got all my stories of everybody bolting the bird and, you know, killing my Notvine Mystic and stuff like that. So, yep. Crush was only in Shards of Alara and in From the Vault. So I'm right. You guys are wrong. Sorry, personal one-upsmanship aside, I, I do think that the the uh, the precon effect has actually quite a bit to do with it. I think that's a really good observation, seeing that Mael and, and such like that, that does help sustain her popularity across time. And, and it's a good card. I mean, that doesn't hurt either. Like Mael, you know, granted the, the, the CMC, well, she's got an aggressive CMC. So like, regardless of whether it was then or today, that's still a very playable 
card, even if you're trying to keep your deck a little bit tighter than maybe you were five or six years ago. And there's a lot, I think, to also be said for the uniqueness of some of these that have yeah. sustained their popularity. Doran, the Siege Tower, is a main one. So back in the old days, he was at, you know, position number three. And nowadays he's position number seven, which is still, you know, super respectable. But until Arcades came out, he was the only commander doing what he was doing. And that also helps sustain a lot of interest because you've got your niche and you're going to fill it and fill it well. And he's still doing it in Abzan, which is different than, than doing it in the Bant as well. So it, he still right. has his niche. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I, that does help give us a bit more perspective on these particular lists. It's neat to take a look at this data and to see that, yeah, stuff, to answer the listener question, stuff has changed over time. And I'm totally okay with that. I think that's really cool. And I also like that one of the big changes is that Wizards is designing more for our format in mind. And Matt, you mentioned the conversation that we had with Gavin on Twitter. That was really fun to see because he didn't just say, oh, it's something we know about. He said, it's something we're like doing. And I'm so excited to show you guys when they finally come out. He just can't talk about them yet. Like that's what's exciting. A lot of the stuff that we're seeing is definitely shifting and the ground isn't like, you know, coming out from beneath our feet. The ground is something that is helping us climb on and make ourselves better players. And so it's just fun to take a look at this data and see that, you know, that sensation that we're having is being supported by actual factual numbers. It's a growing format. It's like language. It's ever evolving. And that is just a really exciting notion for me. All right. If all of that wasn't cheesy enough, we're going to move on to a, a new segment now. We're going to finish up by challenging some statistics. So I'll stop monologuing and I'll hand it off to Matt. How about you challenge some stats? So I, I, I haven't really thought of a challenge of stats yet, but I just keep thinking about our, our set review from, from last, well, two weeks ago now for Guilds of Ravnica. And I just can't get over how good Assassin's Trophy is. I know it seems really <laughs> silly to, like, I, I just... It's not enough decks. Is that what you're telling us? It's not enough decks. It's in zero. We don't zero. even have data for it yet. It's in zero decks, guys. And I know we're better enough. players than this. Zero decks are playing Assassin's Trophy and zero people are... No, that's not how it works. <laughs> but yeah, I, just, I can't get over just how good it is. Um, how it's going to solve a lot of problems. Because it hits any permanent. Uh, you can hit a problem land. You can hit a cradle. You can do all sorts of different things. And it feels kind of weird for me, kind of silly to be telling people, hey, you should play a $30 card. It's not going to be $30. Give it like a month or two. People are going to open it in drafts. People are going to open it in packs, all that. But it's not going to be three either, though. It's not going to be three. No, I mean, you, as long as it's in standard, especially like seeing all the all the pro players talk about how it's an auto four of for standard. I mean, it's probably going to be a $10 card at the bare minimum. I mean, I'm not a finance expert, but. I, I can't see it going below 10 while it's in standard, especially if Vraska's Contempt and cards like that are 15. It's just going to be so right. good, though, guys. Okay, so let's move on from that. My challenge is that it's going to be Cyclonic Rift and Soul Ring. Wow. Sure. Get out of here. <laughs> I, I think what you're actually trying to get at, though, is that, and, and maybe I'm being a little generous here, but like, Assassin's Trophy is going to be an objectively powerful card and it won't have as much statistics on EDH rec as it deserves because it's expensive. And we see the same stuff stymieing the statistics on Teferi's Protection. That thing was immediately expensive out the gate and it meant that it didn't show up in all of the places that it should. And that will also be the case for Assassin's Trophy. So you should, that's another, you know, lens to use when you're looking at the data on EDH rec. A lot of it is based off of popularity of cards and 
you know, you should be looking at the efficiency of cards. And sometimes that means that they come with a higher price tag, which means they're kept out of the hands of most people. But that's just a thing for you to evaluate. This website is here to help you find stuff that you want to play within your means. They're all just recommendations. It's just stuff. And just because Assassin's Trophy will show up with lower percentage than Putrefy doesn't mean it's a worse card. It just means that it's a more expensive card. So yeah. Teferi's Protection is an excellent parallel for, for this card. It's... If you can find it through trades, I mean, everybody has a bunch of stuff in their binder. They have no intention of playing, and it's a bunch of like four and five dollar cards. Trade all that away and just get some get some assassins trophies. Same thing you you know could have done with uh, Teferi's Protection. Like it's it's going to be a very very powerful card. It's going to help you win games. If so, if you're trying to win games, I mean, you can't put a price on gloating over your friends. Joy will tell you that any day of the week. <laughs> what? You just said you liked gloating. You you, you want to... I, I, I like when I'm right and you're wrong. That's different. Or maybe it's not. It doesn't really matter. Assassin's Trophy is a really good card. And honestly, if you can't afford one, that's fine. Because you've also got Putrefy and Status Statue and a whole bunch of other options in those particular colors. But yeah, like don't let the statistics trick you into thinking that it's a bad card. Because it's not. Correct. I'm going to move on to my challenge to stats now. And as I hinted earlier in the cast, it's going to be specifically a card for Rafik of the Many. As we all know, Rafik of the Many, that exalted guy who gives something double strike when it attacks alone, he's really scary because he can demolish you right quick. The card that I'm going to be challenging is Simic Charm because I don't think this is played in nearly enough Rafik decks. Simic Charm is a two mana instant, green and a blue, and it says choose one. Target creature gets plus three, plus three until end of turn, or permanence you control gain hexproof until end of turn, or return target creature to its owner's hand. Every single one of those is a pretty good ability, but in Rafik, they are utter perfection. And I know this because this card kills me a lot. One of my buddies has, or I, said, I guess he had a Rafik deck when he kept on demolishing us with it. So he was like, oh, maybe I'll try something a little new. But every mode in that is just fantastic when you're playing with Rafik. Giving all of your stuff hexproof, we've seen from Heroic Intervention, very, very surprisingly powerful to give it to all of your permanents. Returning something to its owner's hand, that is never a bad fallback. I have Cyclonic Rifted without overloading before, and it's been great. Plus, this allows you to hit your own stuff in case you need to save one of your dudes from a board wipe. But in Rafik, that plus three, plus three until end of turn is actually really powerful. Because while it's probably not a great effect, like you wouldn't run Giant Growth in an EDH deck, well, you might if your commander had double strike all the time and could commander damage people out of the format. Just like Simic Jarm does everything that Rafik wants to. It's never a dead card in your hand. And I think it deserves to see way more play than a mere 18% of Rafik decks. It is so much better than that. It should be in like 81 because that card crushes me and I just think that it should see more play there. I, I do agree. Simic Charm is pretty solid. Uh, when I was playing my Rafik deck, just being able, you know, the Hexproof or the plus three, plus three, I've played that card in Legacy a couple times. Granted, it was before <laughs> I had, it was before I had all my Berserks, but it's still a very good card. It's, it's a toolbox. It's, it's, uh, it's a Dana card. It's it's a very high floor yeah. type of card. You're, you're going to have a, a situation in pretty much every game where one of those modes is going to be relevant. Even if it's, you know, you know, blocking somebody and making sure it doesn't die. Something like that with a, with a pump ability. Getting rid of a blocker because you bounce it to their hand. Exactly. Save them, save your guys from a path. Like, there's a whole bunch of utility packed into that little two-mana spell. And I just think it deserves to see a lot more play. Yeah, the terms right. in general are, are great. Yeah. All right. Our last challenge of stats. Dana, let's get to it. 
Now, now, Joseph, you were you were joking when you mentioned Soul Ring and Cyclonic Rift, but I am going to pick a really popular staple to challenge here, and that is Eternal Witness. Oh my! I think Eternal Witness is somewhat overplayed, and and I'm going to give you a real world example, something I saw about a week ago, to, to tell you why. It was in a game where a player cast his Eternal Witness to bring something back from his graveyard, and a board wipe happened the next turn, and I had a Mimic Vat out. So I, of course, took that Eternal Witness and put it underneath the Mimic Vat and proceeded to use it four or five times to generate enough value to win the game. And afterwards, we were talking about how useful that was, that he gave me that Eternal Witness, kind of joking. And he made the comment that, yeah, man, I never really realized you could use Mimic Vat. I have, I have no way to reuse it and recur the Witness in that particular mm. deck. Well, then why are you playing Eternal Witness over, like, Regrowth, for example, does the same thing for one less mana. The amount of times that, that you're, you're overpaying for a regrowth and then risking me mimic vatting it or someone doing something with it, stealing it from your deck, um, stealing it from play you know, in some way, shape, or form, versus the utility as a 2-1 blocker in Commander, which is almost no utility at all. I'm not saying it's not a great card because it is. It's a fantastic card. But you should understand why you're playing that over regrowth. I'm going to push back on the two on blocker. You know, we talked about uh, what's the card from Guilds of Ravnica where you surveil two and you can flash back a spell in your graveyard, whereas that has the double blue cost. Yeah. Compared to Snapcaster Mage, which they're, I mean, they're almost the same card except Snapcaster has that two one body. We see how much you know how powerful that that creature, you know that you know or I should say that ability stapled to a creature is. Um, well, it's powerful in modern, but the, where, where that blocker is much more relevant than it is in Commander. I, I, if you're playing green, you're probably going to have some convoke effects, especially now that Guilds of Ravnica is coming out. Like I, I think having a two one blocker, it's even if especially if they have to burn a removal spell on it, like you're getting up way in, in card value. I, I think having that ability stapled to a blocker is is worth the extra mana. Well, I'd say if you have a convoke effect, then maybe that's a reason why you're running it. Like, that's a reason then. I'm just saying there's a lot of situations, I think, where people have been told, oh, E-Win goes in every deck. And they haven't thought through exactly what that means. And a lot of times they're overpaying for a regrowth. And and I don't think that blocker is nearly as relevant in Commander, particularly at the point in the game where you care about bringing a card back from your hand. This isn't, you know, a format where you're bringing something back on turn three or four with a turn of witness and having it make a difference. For the most part, when someone's casting that, they're doing it at a point in the game to bring back an impactful card in a way where the blocker just isn't relevant. They're bringing back a thing that's presumably going to shake up the board state. I just, the, I, I can't think of a time I've ever looked at Eternal Witness as a blocker and thought, oh, man, I'm glad he's got that out there to save himself. And I've seen times before where I thought, oh, if you wouldn't have paid the extra mana, you could have done one more thing. I don't know. I, I, I think it's it's something that people play without thinking through what exactly that 2-1 body gives them. So I think I can provide a good middle ground here. Uh, also, the Snapcaster example that you mentioned, I think the card you were comparing it to is Mission Briefing. Yes, indeed. Yes. Yep. Yeah. yeah, that one. And I think that is a pretty decent analogy comparing Regrowth and Eternal Witness versus Mission Briefing and Snapcaster. Really, what I think Dana is trying to say, it isn't that he's challenging the popularity of Eternal Witness. It's that he's challenging the underpopularity of graveyard and recursion so everyone should just play more graveyard and recursion so that they can get right, exactly. so, back and then we should all play with graveyards and so they could be, be a necromancer like joey 
Yes, exactly. So what exactly. If they, what if they eternal witness back their regrowth and then regrowth their eternal witness and then eternal witness their regrowth? Storm. They, I mean, monogreen, that, that's monogreen just, storm. Yeah, that sounds yeah. like everything I want in life. See, perfect. <laughs> we found a compromise, guys. And, and to be clear, like <laughs> absolutely, like if you're playing Marin or you're playing Carador or Muldroth or something, it it makes sense. And maybe if someone told me it makes sense in 99% of decks, I would absolutely agree. Um, I, I would buy that. I just think there's people that are playing it over, I'll use regrowth because it's the best example, they're playing it over regrowth and they don't know why other than someone told them it goes in every deck. The the message here is to make sure that you're playing your cards with intention. Sure, and yes. That's that's a great message, yeah. I guess. <laughs> Grudgingly. <laughs> Matt, begrudging Morgan. All right. Anyway. Well, no, I mean, yeah, I, I do agree, though, with just being intentional. And I mean, we've kind of hinted at, at that, maybe not said it outright throughout the episode, you know, with the, the listener questions. But, yeah, just make sure that, you know, whatever you're doing, being intentional about your deck building whether it's to make sure you're not playing a card-for-card card EDH rec deck or or whatever it is, or, or you want to play a, a certain rule style, just make sure whatever you're doing, just apply a little bit of critical thinking to what you're doing. I, I, I can always get behind that. Yeah, the theme of this episode is definitely to be communicative, interrogate some statistics, and to build the deck that you want to play. And that's just going to be fun. That's I like that. And even if the format is maybe changing, that helps us figure out what we want to do as we change with it. And that's just a really happy cycle. So I really like it. Yeah. You guys got any last minute thoughts that you want to share before we head out for this episode? I Not have, anymore. I've, yeah, we've, we've shared plenty of thoughts. I think probably too much. <laughs> <laughs> we are the oversharers. That's a, that's a, pretty, pretty a scary proposition. Are, yeah, pretty soon my co-hosts are going to start getting chummy and I'll have to call them the wrong name so they don't know it. Or so that they know I don't care about them. Oh, Matt, don't you just want to have friends, though? Not really, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> wow, it's a power play. <laughs> and on that, we're going to call this episode to a close. <laughs> I'd like to thank my co-host so much for joining me. And if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where can they find you all? Mork? So, Mork? Well, well, you can find my friend Mindy uh, on... <laughs> That's Whatever definitely that, an old man reference. That is very much an old man reference. <laughs> but you can find me, Matt Morgan, on the Twitters uh, at Mathemus55, M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And Daniel, how about you? You can find me on Geosities at... No, you can Woo! find me... <laughs> I thought it was Geosites. <laughs> it's so old, nobody knows. You can find me on the Twitter birds at Dana Roach. You can hear me once a week on Weather Show Commander Central. And I'm Jerry Schwartz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schwartz on Twitter. <laughs> all right. In all seriousness, special thanks to our editor for the show, Ken Peddle, also known as Kenish Norn. You can follow him on Twitter at Loader. That's L-O-A-D-3-R. You can follow EDHREC and EDHRECcast on Facebook and Twitter. We're doing a giveaway when we get 5,000 likes and when EDHRECcast gets 1,000 followers on Twitter. So head on over there to smash those like buttons for a chance at a cool prize. You can also contact us at edhrecast at gmail.com and find us on iTunes. And if you do, please consider leaving us a review to help other folks find the podcast. This podcast is posted every week on EDHREC's community content spotlight section, where we feature as many other content creators as we can, from Command Zone to Commander's Brew to Commander Versus, not to mention new articles published every day by our own fantastic team of writers. We'll be back at you next week with more data and insights. But until then, remember, EDHREC your deck before you wreck your deck.
four minutes uh, left. I'm gonna have to go catch a bus here soon. So say something family, you know, appropriate, okay. family friendly show. We can have Moose come up here and start talking to the microphone and Moose sound real confused. And where are you going? Where are you going on a bus? Oh, I guess it's only like seven o'clock. Public there. transportation, man. That's what the peasants do. I was just thinking, it was like ten o'clock. Where are you going on the bus at ten o'clock? That's definitely you're definitely up to no good. Jerry Schwartz. Schwartz. Oh, that's right. Okay.